Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 17. I'm going to cover verses 11 through 37 in this audio. In the previous audio, Jesus was teaching his disciples. This was in his Perean ministry to the east of the Jordan River, down south as we as they were near Jerusalem. And in the first 10 verses of Luke 17, Jesus talked about faith. He talked about faith the size of a mustard seed. He talked about humility. Don't expect anybody to give you any credit because you're doing what you're doing as a duty, just like slaves do. And he said, don't make people stumble. Don't put a millstone around their neck. Miscellaneous teaching. And now we're going to go to verse 11 through 37, which is mainly going to be preparing the disciples for the period of time between Jesus' crucifixion in AD 30 and his coming to judge Jerusalem in AD 70. And so the events will very much parallel the Olivet Discourse, which he has not given yet. And this is not a parallel to the Olivet Discourse. It will sound like it, but apparently Jesus gave the same teaching in different places. Robertson has this ministry, as I said, in Perea. I think that's generally agreed upon. This is not Tuesday of Passion Week, of uh the last week of Jesus's life. This is not that Tuesday when he gave the Olivet Discourse. And verse 11, we have an indication of where they were. Verse 11 reads this way, while traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. Now this is confusing, and this is something that I never heard in any Sunday school lesson. This is Jesus taking a little detour as instead of being in Perea and going straight to Jerusalem in order to be crucified, he went from Perea he went then uh, north of Judea, then into Samaria to the southernmost part of Galilee in order to intercept pilgrims who were coming down for that last final Passover when Jesus was uh, the night before Jesus was crucified. So he, he went back up to meet some pilgrims on the way. Now here's a description of this event, of these events, that is a title head that Robertson gives, quote, Jesus starts on the last journey to Jerusalem by way of Samaria and Galilee. Now what he did, according to Robertson, is he went from Perea to Ephraim, which is a town in northern Judea, as we read in John 11:54. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. Now this is after the healing of Lazarus, the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11. So that event occurred before we get here to verse 11. Lazarus has been raised. Now Jesus heads up to northern Judea to a town called Ephraim, and then he heads to Samaria all the way up to the southern border of Galilee. And then he falls in with the pilgrims, which then come from Galilee back over the Jordan River to Perea and then back to Jerusalem. This might help explain why Luke mentions Samaria before Galilee. When I first read this, I was thinking Jesus was coming down from Capernaum, from uh, Galilee, and if he went from Galilee, he would go from Galilee to Samaria on the way to Jerusalem, and Galilee would mention, be mentioned first, but it's mentioned second here, Samaria first. So that explains it, because this is, this is not on that initial descent from Galilee down to Jerusalem that we we're referring to here. We go to verses 12 through 13. As he entered a village, and this is somewhere on the way, somewhere in Samaria near the southern edge of Galilee, he entered a village. Ten men with serious skin diseases met him, or leprosy as it used to be called. 
they don't call it leprosy anymore because they're not, they're not sure whether it's the same Hansen's disease that we call leprosy. But they so the Holman Christian Study Bible calls it skin diseases, serious skin diseases. Ten men with such diseases met him. They stood at a distance and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Why did they stand at a distance? Because the law said they had to, Leviticus 13:46. He, the leper, will remain unclean as long he, as he has the infection. He is unclean. He must live alone in a place outside the camp. Numbers 5, verse 2. Command the Israelites to send away anyone from the camp who is afflicted with a skin disease. 2 Kings 15, 5. The Lord afflicted the king, who was Azariah, and he had a serious skin disease until the day of his death. He lived in a separate house. And so they were keeping their distance, and they had to shout. That's why it says they raised their voices. They had to yell because they were far away saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. We go now to verse 14. When he, Jesus, saw them, he told them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. Now, he hadn't healed them yet. He just says, You don't need to come here any closer. Just turn around and go to the priest. And while they were going, they were healed. Now, this is very instructive. Application time here. The lepers were totally obedient. They heard a word from Jesus, and they obeyed that word. They sh and then they showed their faith by what they did, and then they got healed. In fact, they got healed on the way down to see the priest in Jerusalem. Now, this is something that comes up a lot in the hyperfaith movement. You can be healed. You just say the words. You just show your faith by your actions. Throw your glasses away and you'll be healed. Well, no, you won't. I, unfortunately, have been in that situation. I can still hear the, 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 the lenses of my glasses crunching on the pavement. No, you have to hear from the Lord first. I'm going to heal you of your eyes. So throw your glasses away. No, that's different if Jesus tells you something. But if you think you're just going to manipulate God into getting a miracle by doing something first and then getting the miracle, it's not going to work that way. you got to hear from God first. Now, that's one error you can make. The other error you can make is when you hear from Jesus, I want you to do this, I want you to do that, and then you don't do it. I'll give you a good example of healing. Is a lot of times Jesus will show you something out of the box. I especially think of all this Chinese medicine that most Americans will not touch. I believe in Chinese medicine, having seen enough of it, but most Americans will, will stay away from it. What if God tells you, I want you to go to an acupuncturist, and you I don't believe in acupuncture. Well, maybe God does. Maybe he's telling you to go there so that you can get rid of your pain, but you don't, I'm not going to do that. Jesus tells you to do something, do something. Sometimes it is outside the box. It's unusual. It's not what your culture would tell you. Now, why would the people with a serious skin disease go see the priest? Because the priest had this elaborate ritual which they had to go through to prove that they were cured from leprosy. I'll read you verses 2 through 3 of Leviticus 13. When a person has a swelling, scab, or spot on the skin of his body, and it becomes a disease on the skin of his body, he is to be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest. The priest will examine the infection on the skin of his body. If the hair in the infection is turned white and the infection appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a skin disease. After the priest examines him, he must pronounce him unclean. Well, that's how the priest proved he was unclean. If you go to Leviticus 14, the next chapter, verses 2 through 32, lots of verses give great detail about the cleansing procedure for lepers, which we won't read. But the point is, is that you had to get proved to be free, that you were free from leprosy so that you could re-enter Israeli society without having to hold your hand over your face and saying, unclean, unclean, unclean. So this was a great miracle here. 
healing lepers is big. That's not an easy miracle to do. You would put that in the in the category of a large miracle. And once again, let me emphasize, they went. They showed their faith. They went, just as Jesus told them. Luke 17, verses 15 through 16, But one of them, one of the lepers, seeing that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him, thanking Jesus. And he was a Samaritan. So this is the Samaritan leper of the ten. He came back and gave glory to God. Now he returned. I don't think that means he went all the way to Jerusalem, saw all the priest and came back. That would have taken much too long. This was He was on his way down there, saw that he was healed, and came back to, to tell Jesus, thank you, to glorify Jesus, to thank him. Common courtesy, I would think. Now notice that these lepers were living together, or they were together, ten of them. One of them was a Samaritan, probably the others were Jews. So that leprosy broke down that social barrier between the Jews and the Samaritans. Clark says nine of the lepers were probably Jews and one was a Samaritan in, in his view. So misery loves company. Same mud, same blood. We go to verse 17 and read 17 through 19 of Luke chapter 17. Then Jesus said, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And again, I'm sure Jesus is constantly making the point that the kingdom of God is for everybody, not just Jews. It includes Samaritans and other foreigners. And he told him, told the Samaritan leper, get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. NIV study Bible and John Gill say, say, say that the Greek can also be rendered, your faith has saved you. Now, if you render it that way, the NIV study Bible says that this means that your faith has saved you spiritually, has gotten you born again, if you will, to use modern New Testament language. In other words... The leper was made whole spiritually because he believed in Jesus due to the healing. Well, that's nice, except it doesn't sound like that to me. It sounds like to me that their belief, his belief in Jesus made him well from the leprosy. I think the context and the natural way of reading that would make you think that. It just seems to me that these egghead evangelical theologians will do anything to separate Christians from the idea of faith and healing. Oh, that's faith healers. I mean, the word's even got a negative a negative connotation. Oh, he's a faith healer. He's a fraud. Sure, they're frauds. Sure, they're faith healers. Just like this counterfeit money. I'm not going to get rid of my George Washingtons or my Benjamin Franklins because people are out there counterfeiting them. But anyway, this just Jesus shows that your his, the, the leper's response to his word. Great things happen. And this is all through the New Testament. Jesus does something or he says something and like Peter, get out of the, you know. I guess I assume he said, Peter, come to me out of the boat. I think he explicitly said that. And Peter responded. He got out of the boat and walked on the water. So Jesus tells you something, do it. Now notice that Jesus knew that the other ten were cleansed. That's because he had perfect confidence in his ability to heal, even though he couldn't see those other nine lepers who were heading down to Jerusalem. Jameson Fawcett Brown said this is an example of his omniscience. Yeah, that could be, or it could be just because he's confident in the natural flesh. He knew when, when he healed somebody, he knew he could heal them. Now, notice when it says, let me back up a minute, when your faith has made you well, the faith is the means of receiving the healing, but the real cause was Christ, and that's something that faith message charismatic, I've dumped on evangelical pinheads, now let me dump on the other extreme, the name it and claim it wacko faith message people, the Copenhagenites. They say, your faith has made you well. I remember one time seeing on a Copeland telecast, have faith in your faith, written right there in the text, on the, in the caption at the bottom of the screen. Have faith in your faith. No, it's faith in Jesus. 
the implication, even though Jesus didn't explicitly say it, the implication is your faith in me has made you well. Your faith in Jesus Christ has made you well. Remember, the ultimate healer, the ultimate doer of the miracle was Jesus, not you. You just receive what Jesus did. You received openly with a heart of faith, but your open heart of faith is not what ultimately caused the healing. It was Jesus that ultimately caused the healing. Verses 20 through 21. We now switched from the healing of the leper to the kingdom of God coming. And I think there's probably a reason for that. When you see a healing of a leper, you think kingdom of God. As in Isaiah, what is it, Isaiah 14? The deaf see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. The blind sea, I don't know if it says anything about the lepers being cleansed, but, you know, cleansing leprosy was considered a big miracle. I think it was a messianic miracle, one of the signs of the Messiah, if I remember correctly. So in verse 20, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, he, Jesus, answered them, answered the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, look here or there, for you see, the kingdom of God is among you. Now, here we have a contrast between the physical messianic kingdom of the Pharisees expected by all the Jews observable kingdom as opposed to the invisible kingdom among the people the spiritual kingdom now the observable kingdom is one that the Pharisees were expecting because they were expecting pomp and sacrifice and golden thrones and soldiers and and horses and chariots and diplomats and taxes and public buildings, you know, all the things that go along with a physical government, a physical kingdom. You can see all that. No, Jesus is saying, no, the kingdom of God is among you. Now, it's, it's debatable exactly what he meant by that. Is it among you because the, the believers following Jesus are among you, and, the, and, and they are the foundation, the seed of the kingdom of God, the beginning of the kingdom of God could be, or it could be referring to Jesus himself. I am among you, and I'm the kingdom of God. It could be that. Now, if you say the kingdom of God, you don't want to say the kingdom of God is within you, because that sounds like the kingdom of God is within the Pharisees, which, of course, it was not. It was internal in the hearts of Jesus' disciples. And then the disciples were among the Pharisees. So if you want to take the among you is referring to the disciples. I prefer to just take it to Jesus. The kingdom of God is among you. Look, I just healed up ten lepers, and I'm the beginning of the kingdom of God. And this is an example, of course, of that old theological phrase, the kingdom of God is already and not yet. We go to Luke 17, verses 22 through 23. Then he told his disi the disciples, this Jesus, then he, Jesus, told the disciples, the days are coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you won't see it. They will say to you, look there, or look here, don't follow, or run after them. Now, this is most probably referring to the run-up period before AD 70, when the disciples would long to see Jesus coming in judgment on Jerusalem. The days of the Son of Man referring to the day of judgment, referring to his coming to destroy Jerusalem. And, of course, that was a time of persecution, as Jesus warned them many times. It would chase you from synagogue to synagogue, and so forth. And so that's why they would long to see Jesus is coming to judge these persecuting rabbinic Jews who are ruining their lives. He says, but you're not going to see it. It's not going to happen automatically. It's going to delay 40 years, a generation. It's going to be a long time. They will say to you, look there, look here, don't follow or run after them. That's referring to the false messiahs who in the times of stress, especially when the Jewish war happened between the Romans, and that's another reason why those disciples could long for the, for the coming of the Son of Man is because the Romans were persecuting the Jews in general, and they were Jews as well as Christians. So 
lots of trouble coming up in the in the immediate years ahead, and they're going to long to get it over with and for Jesus to come back. Now, these false messiahs are mentioned in the Olivet Discourse. Now, again, this is a parallel. This is, excuse me, this is not the same occasion as the Olivet Discourse, but it's the same teaching. And you remember when Jesus said, you'll see them, I don't have the verse in front of me, but uh, they'll, they'll be in the desert, you'll, they'll be in the wilderness, they'll come to you in secret rooms. In other words, secret messiahs hiding out in the wilderness and Jesus said, don't follow them. Don't run after them. Same same idea here. They're, they're going to be false messiahs. Don't you follow them. Don't you follow them. There it is. I, I, here's the verse. Matthew 24, 23 in the Olivet Discourse. If anyone tells you, then look, here's the Messiah. Or over here, do not believe it. Same idea. Now these days are coming. It says here in our verse. In verse 22 of Luke 17, the days are coming. When you long to see, that's the days that are coming up until the run, those are the run-up days until A.D. 70. Now this idea of the days of coming is, is repeated in two chapters later in Luke 19, verse 43. For the days will come, the days are coming, verse 22, seven, chapter 17. For the days will come, verse 43, Luke 19. For the days will come... On you, when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. And that, of course, was the siege of Rome by Sestus as he put his siege engines up around the city. Jesus predicted that completely. And so the days of the Son of Man is referring to that time when the days were coming that they would see the abomination of Jerusalem, of desolation, the abomination which causes desolation surrounding the city, and they would flee to Pella. When the Roman general Cestius withdrew and then all the Christian Jews in the city got out of Dodge and they went to Pella and they were safe. That's coming up in just a minute. But right here, Jesus is saying, don't follow the false messiahs. Now, this is a good warning to followers of prophecy nuts. Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, Jameson Fawcett and Brown says this, these prophets who cry, lo, there, and see, here, every time that war breaks out or revolutions occur, in other words, Tim LaHaye, Hal Lindsey. There's always going to be wars and rumors of wars, folks. But tie those wars and rumors of wars to the this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. Tie it to the context. And you will end up with an orthodox preterist interpretation of the scriptures, which will make your life so much easier as you try to understand that which has become obscure and dark rather than clear and evident. All right, we go now to verse 24 of Luke 17. For as the lightning flashes from horizon to horizon and lights up the sky, so the Son of Man will be in his day. Lightning is obvious. These false messiahs are hiding in the wilderness and in in the secret rooms. They're not obvious. They're hidden. Jesus is saying, no, no. If if somebody's predicting the coming kingdom was in secrecy, that's not it. It's going to be lightning. It's going to be obvious. In other words, when you see the Roman armies level Jerusalem to the ground, that's pretty darn obvious, just like lightning is. Not to mention the fact that lightning destroys, just like the Roman army destroyed Jerusalem. Not to mention the fact that lightning is sudden. Bam! Happens all of a sudden. Jerusalem went down so fast. It was unbelievable. There was the Roman peace and then the Jewish war and then bye-bye Jerusalem, bye-bye Israel. Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 40, You also be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. He told him the general time frame before that generation passed away, as in Matthew 24, but it didn't say exactly when. They had to wait it out and see, and then when it happened, they'd know it because it would be obvious, like lightning, lightning, lightning lighting up the sky from east to west. You notice that the 
So the Son of Man, Jesus mentioned the phrase Son of Man a couple of times. That's his messianic term. I won't go into the details of how we know that. Just I've done that so many times in the previous audios in Matthew and Mark. I'm just going to leave it out here. But just know that the Son of Man is a messianic term. And notice that it's in his day. Day is day of judgment. It's a general term that, that often means judgment. It could be the judgment of Jehovah, of Yahweh. In this case, is Jesus' judgment. His judgment day, he's going to judge Jerusalem, the same Jerusalem that murdered him, so that perfect righteousness might be prevail, that might prevail. Now, by the way, I should mention that other futurists, of course, don't say this is AD 70. They say it's the end of the world, second advent, and I don't think that's true. Let's look at Jameson Fawcett and Brown, 19th century commentators, who say this, and by the way, so does John Gill. These are not what you would know. These are not commentators who would be known as Orthodox preterists. They're just 19th century commentators who operated before the dispensationalists came along and ruined Christian theology. Quote, the Lord speaks here of, this is Jameson Fawcett and Brown, I'm quoting, the Lord speaks here of his coming and manifestation in a prophetically indefinite manner and in these preparatory words blends into one the distinctive epithets. Well, I don't agree with that. I think he's talking about 8070. I don't think he's talking about end of the world and 8070. Then Jameson Fawcett and Brown goes on, when the whole polity of the Jews, civil and ecclesiastical alike, was broken up at once and its continuance rendered impossible by the destruction of Jerusalem, it became as manifest to all as the lightning of heaven that the kingdom of God had ceased to exist in its old and had entered on a new and perfectly different form. So it may be again, ere its final and greatest change at the personal coming of Christ, and of which the words in their highest sense are alone true. All right, now you see there, he, he's not going to get away from the idea that Jesus is talking about the end of the world. But he points out that the primary reference is to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. He's into that double fulfillment idea. But still, I don't think so. I think Jesus is talking about AD 70. Of course, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown are correct. When Jesus comes back at the end of the world, it's obviously going to be like lightning flashing from left to right all over the sky from east to west because that's going to be pretty obvious too. So, I mean, I'm not complaining about that as a secondary reference, but I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about here. In other words, I'm not complaining about the fact that the second coming will be obvious like lightning. Yes, it will. But Jesus is talking about 8070. He's trying to prepare his disciples who have to go through that persecution the days that they're longing for the days of the Son of Man, the time that they're longing. He's talking about his disciples back then who had to go through a specific period of persecution. He was trying to get them ready. Now let's go to Luke chapter 17, verse 25. But first, before the days of the Son of Man, when he comes to destroy Jerusalem, but first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now that phrase, this generation, is the phrase that Jesus commonly uses to refer to the Jews who would kill him, the Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Matthew 24, 34, I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. And of course, that all those things taking place would happen when, when it's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, which the disciples had asked Jesus about in verses 1, 2, 3 in Matthew 24. This generation will certainly not pass away until the temple of Jerusalem goes down and not one stone is left on top of another. So it's all going to happen within 70 years. All right. So this generation is who Jesus is referring to. It does not refer to all the Jews throughout history. That generation of Jews made Jesus suffer. 
and reject and the, and and that generation of Jews rejected Jesus and they got punished for it they were destroyed that does not refer to all the generations of Jews which come afterwards afterwards because that leads it has led to gross anti-semitism and obloquy on the heads of the Jews which is unjustified Jews did not do him any more than I did or you did except that we're sinners but as far as nailing him on the cross in, in the direct primary sense, that generation of Jews did it, as well as the Romans. But no, we, we don't blame Italians today for blame, nailing Jesus to the cross, do we? Then why should we blame Jews for nailing Jesus to the cross? That's the same thing, this idea of race guilt. All, you know, all white people guilty because white people own slaves. Generally, actually, there were a lot of black slave owners, too, down here in the South. But in general, it was white people. And so see there, white privilege. You, you, you've got to be suffer for what your white uh, ancestors did, despite the fact I don't know who my white ancestors were. They probably didn't own slaves, and I didn't have a ding-dong damnable thing to do with it, but I'm going to get blamed for it. Well, it's the same thing here. We don't blame Jews for what that generation of Jews did. Now, Jesus said he must suffer many things, and again, this is hard for the disciples because they were expecting a messianic kingdom, a, a, a visible, outward, pompous, glorious physical, natural, political kingdom, and then Jesus is talking about dying. That didn't fit in their mindset, but Jesus constantly did it. I'm going to read you a good many verses here, eight of them. Some of them might be parallel, but that's okay. I'm going to read these eight verses to show you how often Jesus predicted his coming death. Luke 5.35, but the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. Luke 9.43-45, and they were all astonished at the greatness of God, while everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing. He told his disciples, let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Notice this is after a bunch of great miracles, and they're getting all excited about the Messianic kingdom. Like, uh, 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 guys, let this sink in. I'm going to die. They did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them, so they, they could not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Luke 12:50. but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how it consumes me until it is finished. Of course, that's the baptism of suffering and death. Luke 13, 32 through 33, he said to them, go tell that fox, that's Herod Antipas, look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will complete my work. Yet I must travel today, tomorrow, and the next day, because it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. He predicted he was going to die in Jerusalem. Luke 18:32. for he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked insulted, spit on, Luke 24, verse 7. The Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day, Matthew 16:21. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. You know, Jesus made it pretty clear. He had to. He had to repeat it all the time because the disciples kept seeing those miracles, and they're thinking, hot dog, the Messiah's here, the Messianic kingdom, because that's what they'd been taught. That was what their culture taught. Messianic kingdom was going to be external and glorious. We go to verse 26. Oh, first of all, let me point out to you, but first, first before what? Before 87 is what I think. But some people say that means, but first before the end of the world, when Jesus comes back at the end of the world. Well, by saying first and then, postponing the second until 2,000 years later doesn't sound right, doesn't sound natural. And Jameson Fawcett and Brown agrees with me on that. He says, this shows 
this must, the Son of Man must first suffer. This shows that the more immediate reference of Luke 17:23 is is to an event soon to follow the death of Christ. That would be 8070, not the end of the world. It was designed to withdraw the attention of his disciples from the glare, the lightning going from east to the west, in which his foregoing words had invested the approaching establishment of his kingdom. In other words, they would get they would get all excited about the Messianic kingdom and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Soon the Son of Man must first suffer before this great and glorious kingdom that you're expected. But the idea is it's going to happen soon. It doesn't actually say soon in the text. That's Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown's interpretation of it, and I think they're right. Luke 17, verses 26 through 27. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. The days of the Son of Man, that's referring to AD 70, the judgment day of Jesus coming in. People went on eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Well, what happened in the days of Noah? Life was going on, eating, drinking, marrying, everything's normal, and boom, there was a big flood, wiped them all out. And the idea here is the same thing's going to be happening in Jerusalem, eating, drinking, marrying, having a good old time, and then boom, Jewish war comes, and down you go. Now, some people say that this also refers to the end of the world. I don't believe that, but just to give equal time here, let me mention John Gill, who believes it does refer to 8070, but he also thinks it refers to the end of the world, too, a double reference. John Gill says, quote, The times of Noah's flood, of Jerusalem's destruction, and of the end of the world bear a great resemblance to each other. And when the Son of Man comes in either of these senses, then will the kingdom of God come, or then will it appear that the Messiah is come and has took to himself his great power and reigns. Okay, but that's not, I don't think it's the end of the world. I think he's talking about AD 70. Although I wouldn't be surprised, like God loves to recapitulate things. You know, he does things with type. Typologically, he gives an historical event in the Old Testament, and that's fulfilled in the New as a spiritual thing. I wouldn't be surprised if what happened in 8070, which was a recapitulation of what happened in 8586 when the Babylonians came, I wouldn't be surprised if the coming when Jesus comes is, is a coming in, in judgment as a parallel. It wouldn't surprise me in the least. I don't know that because I don't think that's what Jesus was, was referring to here, but I think it could very well and likely will be that way. But I wouldn't make a doctrine on it based on this verse. Now, notice that just as lightning comes suddenly, we've already mentioned lightning. So this flood comes suddenly, like lightning, suddenly and unexpected in the days of Noah. I think I've already mentioned that. Notice that this idea of the flood coming in Noah's time is also mentioned in the Olivet Discourse, which I think is beyond belief. Cavill referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 8070 because that generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And one of those things take place was eating and drinking just like in the days of Noah. So we got a, uh, a similar verse in the Olivet Discourse here in Luke. So I think in the Olivet Discourse, it clearly refers to 8070. I think it also refers to 8070 here in Luke. Luke 17, verses 28 through 29. It will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. It meaning the days of Jesus, the, his day, the days of judgment. Of the days of the Son of Man, it will be the same as it was in the days of Lot. People went on eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, and building, just like in the days of Noah, actually. But on that day, Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. This, of course, is the famous story in Genesis 18, verse 16 through 19, verse 28. We have the same debate amongst the commentators. Does this refer to 8070, the end of the world, or does it refer to both? I prefer 8070. Notice that the, the, the 
biblical examples that Jesus has given to, to enforce his point are similar on that one point, is the suddenness of the destruction. Sudden, quick, and unexpected, just like happened with the lightning, verse 24, verses 26 through 27, just like Noah's flood. Same with Sodom and Gomorrah. Boom! Fire. So fire a lot of times refers to lightning in the Old Testament. It could also refer to the fire coming from the volcanoes that were splitting the ground and shooting all that sulfur up into the air. <laughs> you know, we, we keep talking about the United States, Sodom and Gomorrah. We've got to remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. The end was not pleasant. As conservatives talk about American exceptionalism. Yeah, America's exceptional, all right? We're exceptionally filthy, morally. And as liberals talk about, oh, they're going to bring in a new kingdom of peace and progress. Yeah, we'll see. Verse 30 through 31, Luke chapter 17. It will be like that day on the it will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. And again, I'm taking day as referring to the uh, AD 70. Son of Man is the messianic term. Jesus is talking about messianic stuff here because he's coming back to destroy the kingdom that murdered him. Son of Man will be revealed. It'll be obvious, like lightning, like fire, like flood. It's going to be obvious. He's going to be revealed. It's going to be shown that no, Jerusalem, you didn't get away with murdering the Son of God. You didn't get away with it. All right, on that day, the day of destruction in AD 70, on that day a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Now, let's stop here. The houses back then were flat. They had stairways up the outside and stairways up the inside so they could go up in the cool of the evening and take it easy up there and eat maybe, relax, read. But the houses were flat, and so in a time of destruction when they had to flee real quick, as they did when the Christians fled, when... Cestius Gallus removed his army, the abomination that caused the desolation, removed it from around Jerusalem, and they got out and fled to Pella. They had to do it quickly because the Jews on the inside and the Romans might come back any day. So they had to flee, and they would flee on top of the housetops. They didn't have to go down into the house. But he says here, don't go down to get them. Stay on the top of the house, jump from housetop to housetop, and get out. In other words, the idea is get out of there quickly. Now, that doesn't mean everybody in Jerusalem did that. It just, Jesus is making the point. Don't mess around. Get out because you're not going to have a lot of time. Likewise, he continues in verse 31. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Passage in Matthew 24 says a man in the field must not turn back, must not go back to get his clothes. The idea is, is when you're working, you take your outer garment off, you put them on the edge of the field so you don't get so hot. And you don't get your clothes hot and sweaty. And the temptation would be, oh, judgment coming. I better go back and get my clothes. No, just get out of Dodge. Leave fast as you can. And again, I don't think that literally means that everybody's working in the field. Doesn't have to, can't pick his clothes up on the way out. It just means Jesus is trying to make the point. Get out, get out quick. You don't have a lot of time. He's trying to warn them of what he knew through divine revelation. He knew that what the events of the Jewish war that were going to happen, and, and, we're going, and, and those events were going to give the Christian Jews in Jerusalem a very narrow window of opportunity to escape with their lives. And I always like to point this out too, flat top houses, that's not likely going to be the houses that are going to happen during the Great Tribulation. I mean, I guess you could say, I mean, it's possible. The so-called Great Tribulation at the end of the world, and most houses don't have flat tops today, but maybe some do, I don't know. I won't make a big doctrinal point about that. We go to Luke 7, verse 17, verses 32 through 33. Remember Lot's wife, Jesus continues. 
Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Well, what did Lot's wife do? The judgment had come on Sodom. She's escaping, and she says, Ooh, I hate to lose what I got back in Sodom. So she turns around and looks, and somehow she dies. And I don't know whether she had apoplexy. I don't know whether one of those lightning bolts hit her or whether a volcanic eruption got her. I don't know. Probably lightning. <laughs> but, you know, she was... She, the idea was you don't look back because that will show that you're still longing for what you had. It's over, guys. It's over. And so what Jesus is saying, don't think that your future is in Jerusalem because it's over. Jerusalem's going down, and you're going to have to start over. It's better to lose your possessions than lose your life. So if you try to make your life secure by, go back, by going back into that walled city of Jerusalem, you're going to lose it because Jerusalem's, Jerusalem's going to get burnt down to the ground. Whoever loses his life, in other words, whoever loses his possessions and his culture and his future and his job and his profession and all whatever he had in Jerusalem, you're going to preserve it because you're not going to you're not going to die when you escape to Pella. This idea of not holding on to your possessions so that you can live on other occasions, not Olivet Discourse, not 8070 occasions, but just on other occasions, Jesus taught the same idea, Luke 9:24. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. So that's a great application because everybody's chasing money, 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 security. You, that seems to be everywhere in the world. So you're trying to save your life, make your life secure. You're going to lose it. You're going to die. And in this world, there's all kinds of earthquakes and fire and storms and financial crashes and all kinds of disasters and divorce and and robbery and all kinds of evil things that will cause you to lose your life or to lose your your way of life. But if you give it all to Jesus, he's going to give you something that will never be taken away from you, ever. Matthew 10, 39, anyone finding his life will lose it, and anyone losing his life because of me will find it. Same idea. Matthew 16, 25 through 26. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? How much money can you make, Mr. Rich American Businessman? How much money can you make to buy your life? How much money can you make and invest so that you will live forever? There's not that amount of money in the world that can do that. What good does it do if you have all the money that Bill Gates has and you're going to lose your life by ending up separated from God forever in hell? What good is that? But if you lose your life, even if you lose all your money, all your pride, all your friends, all your prestige, all your social prestige, and become a quote-unquote religious fanatic, you're going to find your life. You're going to find life and life more abundantly. Let's go back to Lot's wife here in this verse, verse 32. She probably turned back to get some of her goods. Adam Clark says, J Jameson Fawcett Brown says, it might be just because her heart was still there. I always took it because her heart was still there. I don't think she was thinking about going back to get her goods because the city was being destroyed. I don't think she was that brave, but I think she wanted her stuff. And by the way, becoming a pillar of salt, I don't believe it happened instantly. I believe her corpse lay down in the desert and it got crystallized by all the salt in the desert, which is a pretty ignominious way for a person to die. I imagine Lot had to just leave her there. He couldn't hang around. He couldn't carry. He was running, remember, so he couldn't carry his dead wife with him. He had just to leave her there in the sand. Pretty pitiful. Great object lesson, though. Don't look back at the things of this world. Don't look back at the perishing things of your current life. 
I mentioned those who fled from Pillar, afraid, fled from Jerusalem to Pillar, being completely saved. Let me read the verse in Luke 21, verses 22-21, that that tipped off the, the Jerusalem believers, Jewish believers, to leave Jerusalem. In verse 20 of Luke 21, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies that recognize that its desolation has come near, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains, those inside the city must leave it, and those who are in the country must not enter it. That refers to when Cestus Gallius surrounded Jerusalem at the very beginning of the, of the Jewish war. I think it was AD 66. And then when he left, that's when the Jews say, Whoa, we got a chance now. Let's get out of here. Luke 17, verse 34 through 35. I tell you, on that night, two will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. This is talking about the death that's going to happen in 8070. Now, we'll point out here that a lot of times people will, the futurists will say, see there, one, or not futurist in general, but in specifically, Pre-tribulational futurists will say one will be taken in the rapture and the other will be left behind. That's where we get that famous book, Left Behind. It's all based on, how can I say this politely, nonsense. The, the taking here is the taking to destruction, just like the flood took Noah and destroyed him. Just like the destruction on Lot, the fire and the sulfur destroyed Lot's wife. She was taken to be destroyed. And here the idea is two will be in bed, one will be taken to be destroyed. Two women be grinding grain together, one will be taken to be destroyed, and the other left. Okay? Now, the NIV study Bible says that there's two options for that taking. They say it could be taken to destruction, just like I finished saying. In other words, taken by the Roman soldiers. John Gill, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown agree with that interpretation, and I agree with it too, especially when we look at Matthew 24:39. When we see the flood of Noah, the flood came and swept them all away. Who was taken? The bad guys who mocked in the time of Noah. And that story of Noah's flood is in the immediate context of Matthew 24, 40-41, which says that two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. In the Olivet Discourse, the taking of the men in the field and the women grinding at the mill was right in the context of the bad guys in Noah's times being taken in the flood. So usually the context there, the, the taken will be to destruction, not to salvation. And if you go back, and then if you take that interpretation in Matthew 24, the taking is for destruction. We go back here to Luke, 20, Luke 17, verse 34, the taking is for destruction also. I think the, the equities are on my side on, on that particular issue. Now, there is another option. It could be that they were taken not in a pre-trib rapture, but they were taken to safety in Pella. And the ones that were left were destroyed in the city. And since that's the context too, that very well could be it. Now there's one other little problem in this verse. You notice that in verse 34 it says, on that night two will be taken. And so some people say, well that has to refer to the fact that the destruction of Jerusalem happened at night. I don't think so. I think Jesus is just talking about daily life. He's taking examples from daily life about People will intimately be together, like they're sleeping in the same bed. They're intimately, intimately tied together, and all of a sudden, bam, one of them's gone. What a tragedy. It's not talking about whether it was nighttime or daytime. And I back that up by looking at verse 35, the very next verse. you got two women will be grinding grain together, intimately working together. That's in the daytime. That's not at the nighttime. His point is not what time of day it is. His point is, is that intimate people, friends, are going to be, their friendships and their close relationships are going to be destroyed by this horrible disaster that's coming. So I think that's how you explain the night deal there. 
there's another mention of the word day in Luke 17, verse 30, on the day that the Son of Man, excuse me, on verse 31, on that day a man on the housetop must not come down to get them. So you say, ah, the judgment's on, the, on AD 70 is in the daytime. And then we come down here to verse 34, at that night two will be in bed. Oh, but got a contradiction. The judgment in AD 70, one's at day and one's at night. No, I don't think that's what it's talking about. It's, it's a, I don't think it's a contradiction at all just talking about the things that people normally do during that time and day is, is uh, by the way it doesn't have to be a 24-hour day anyway it could just be a general time time frame so the two that were in bed could be husbands and wife or they could be two people reclining on a couch to eat and one of them's taken away husband and wife makes it the story a little bit better intimate relationship completely destroyed by the disastrous judgment on jerusalem we go to verse 36 two will be in a field one will be taken another will be left there's a textual problem here. The NIV omits this verse, puts the text from omits this verse and puts it in the margin. Adam Clark says it's probably not in the original text. The Holman Christian Study Bible puts it in brackets. Well, it doesn't matter. We it's in the Olivet Discourse, and the idea is one is to be taken for destruction, and the other is going to be left, or one will be taken to Pella for salvation, and the other will be left to be destroyed in the field depending on how you want to take that. Verse 37, where, Lord, they asked him. Where, Lord, they asked him. Now, what does the where refer to? The two will be in bed, one will be taken, one will be left, two women grinding grain, and they say where. They didn't say when, they said where. He said to them, where the corpse is, there also the vultures will be gathered. That is, it's going to be obvious where it is. It's going to be in Jerusalem when Jerusalem is nothing but a corpse, and they're vultures circling all around the dead bodies actually that was a proverb and the point of the proverb is if you see a corpse if you see vultures you know there's a corpse there by there's no question about it the corpse is obvious it might be hidden in the woods or something when you see the vultures around you know there's a corpse down there so it's obvious it's clear but th this metaphor might have a little deeper meaning for one thing the, the word for vultures the greek word is also translated as eagles where the corpse is where the dead Jerusalem is lying, there also the Roman eagles will be gathered, the eagles that are on their stanchion. That could be, or forgetting the Roman idea, going the, the eagle idea, going back to the vultures, where the dead body of Jerusalem is, because it's destroyed, the vultures are gathered around, ready to pick the bones of the dead Jews who dared kill the Son of God. The NIV Study Bible says that the reference is not really to the destruction of the Jerusalem as, as a point of... Uh, of its death, but the point of the metaphor, whether you have op options, the point of the metaphor is its obviousness. As I mentioned earlier, the vultures gathering around, obviously. Futurists like to say the second bodily coming of Jesus is obvious. Of course, the answer to that is the judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70 was pretty obvious, too. Or we can take the point of the proverb here, the point of the metaphor, is that it's talking about judgment. I mentioned this earlier, the, the vultures are circling around, picking the dead bones of the dead Jews' judgment. Now, here's some scriptures that in the Old Testament kind of point out that vultures, or eagles, same Greek word, refers to judgment. Deuteronomy 28:49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth as the eagle swoops down. A nation whose language you shall not understand. Judgment. Hosea 8:1. Put the horn to your mouth. One like an eagle comes against the house of the Lord because they transgress my covenant and rebel against my law. 
Jeremiah 19, 7 through 9, I will spoil the plans of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. I will make them fall by the sword before the enemies, by the hand of those who want to take their life. I will provide their corpse as food for the birds of the sky. I will make this city desolate. Of course, that's referring to the first destruction of Jerusalem in 85, 80, B.C. 586. Jeremiah 7, 33 through 34, the corpses of these people will become food for the birds of the sky. You see birds of the sky, you see corpses, you see judgment, and for the wild animals of the land with no one to scare them away. I will remove from the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem the sound of joy and gladness and the voices of the groom and the bride, for the land will become a desolate waste. So you see birds is connected with desolate waste. Isaiah 46, 11, I call a bird of prey from the east, a man for my purpose from a far country. I forgot who Isaiah was referring to there. It might have been, it doesn't matter. Some foreign leader is going to come in like a bird of prey. So birds, those kind of birds symbolize judgment. So anyway, the purpose of the metaphor, where the corpse is, the vulture will gather, is either the obviousness of the judgment, so you don't go running off to messiahs, false messiahs, and the secret rooms, or it's referring to the horrible judgment that's coming upon Jerusalem, or perhaps even both. Ladies and gentlemen, I have finished with Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 37 mostly talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, a little preview of the Olivet Discourse as Jesus tries to prepare his disciples for the bad stuff that's coming before the good stuff comes. Hope you enjoyed this audio. In our next audio, we will examine Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. We'll, we will look at two parables on prayer, the importunate widow and the Pharisee and the publican. Hope you enjoyed this audio. 